Hi, my name is Maria Rollin and I chair the Heritage Committee of the Royal College of Anaesthetists. And I'm joined again for this second section of the history by David Bogod and Eleanor Shaw. In part one, they discussed the factual history of the British Anaesthetic Journals, the BJA, British Journal of Anaesthesia and Anaesthesia. In this episode, they will discuss, amongst other things, peer review, fraud, and the continuing importance of the journals in an evolving NHS and an evolving healthcare system. David and Eleanor, off you go. At some point, the, the balance of power, it seems to me, shifts from the people writing the articles to the journal accepting them. And that I always suspected that fitted in with the introduction of peer review as well. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, the, in, the history of peer review is currently an area that's being really re-evaluated by historians at the moment. There's going to be a forthcoming book by Melinda Baldwin um, about the history of peer review. And it, you know, as ever, <laughs> upturns that kind of received idea that um, peer review was actually all about ensuring quality. It wasn't, spoiler alert. <laughs> It was really about, you know, she's looking very much, she looks at the journal Nature, so that's what her background is in, but she also looks at a lot of um, American journals. And she, in the American context, can really pinpoint in the uh, sort of late 1960s, early 1970s, what you get is that kind of post-war boom in scientific funding starts to decline. And you also have real genuine concerns from governments and funding bodies that scientists have too much power and that they need to have more oversight on what they're spending their money on and how they're managing themselves and so scientists um, find themselves in a bit of a conundrum you know the money's dried up uh, people are asking awkward questions and she really does very convincingly show that peer review was a response to that it was a way of showing uh, signaling that uh, that you have systems and balances and checks on your community whilst also entirely retaining control of that community. And, it, and it, it was in many ways incredibly successful beyond the initial idea. You know, we now see it, peer review has become this ultimate signal of uh, quality, but that really was the context in which it's introduced. And so when you look at UK journals, it's not immediately obvious how much of those specific concerns about funding and government intrusion are still relevant. Certainly some, because by that point, you know, we're talking about a global community of science. Um, but what really happens is it's much slower than you would expect. You know, it's not like one day the editor makes all the decisions and then the next day they implement peer review as we would understand it in full. But when we look at the BJA, they had always had this uh, tradition of sending, you know, the borderline cases and the ones that needed a lot of work to either members of the editorial board or, or other anaesthetists who had the relevant expertise. That was a long tradition at the journal. And then in 1973-ish, they decide to do that in a slightly more systematic way, but it still isn't peer review as we would understand it. You know, it's moving towards that. So they basically then get a team of kind of junior editors 
who are instructed to peer review everything. The questions that they are, are asking are still not the kind of questions that we would necessarily understand to be um, relevant to peer review. And as ever, it's the junior editors who do all the work, or the senior editors of course. go on the front, front page. Absolutely. I mean, if you look yeah. at the brandy receipts, I'm sure <laughs> the Christmas party and Christmas gift receipts remain ever interesting reading. Um, Are they? Oh, can you, you've got those. Yeah, so once we start getting accounts and finances and letters mm. from the 1950s onwards, it's sporadic. It's nothing like every single thing they ever bought. But there are, you know, substantial amounts of money spent on bottles of brandy for various parties and as Christmas gifts and everything. Um, yeah. <laughs> Um, I really wish we had the ones from the 1920s because there is this like persistent legend that they spent basically the entire budget of the journal on their dinners out. Oh, um, if only, if only that yeah, they've okay. disappeared to the to the sons of time, which is a real shame. I would say around the 1970s, this beginning of a change. You know, we start to have the rumblings of uh, ideas about peer review, even if it's not what we would see as peer review. But you also have, of course, the science has developed tremendously by this point. You know, the the ideas about what science should be, how it should be done. Um, you know, anaesthetic practice is radically different from the still drops of ether on a handkerchief in the 1920s. You know, we've seen a huge progression by this time of you know, what anaesthesia is, what it thinks itself to be, how it should be done and how science should be practised. And this comes along with a kind of increasing realisation and it is very slow across the 70s, 80s and 90s about what roles journals have in expecting, you know, a kind of ethical practice. Um, and I think that that it is a slow burn uh, you know, we have increasing ideas about animal welfare. We have increasing ideas about the need for projects to go in front of ethical review boards. Um, and then we also have this very slow and steady awakening of journals to, you know, the idea that maybe they should have something to do with that as well. Maybe they should be trying on a minimal level, but trying to, to engage in that as well. But I mean, historically, the importance and um, ethical approach uh, derives from uh, World War II and the Nazi experiments in particular. But that, well, that was very much about um, institutional ethics. When did journals start to become interested in, in having a, as it were, a policing aspect towards ethics? Because that's from the point of view of the journal uh, which I edited, that's always been very much to the forefront and more so in the years uh, after I finished and, and when um, Steve, Steve Yentis took over, who has a very strong uh, bent in that direction. I mean, as ever, you know, there were rumblings before, but it is, you know, the kind of um, ethical scandals uh that, you know, we had Bolt and we had, what was the Japanese guy called? Remind me. Uh, Fuji. Yes. So, you know, as much as we had um, rumblings before Fuji and Bolt, you know, they had these huge scandals, they were anaesthetists, they fabricated data, they published quite a lot before they got found out. It unfortunately does tend to be in response to specific scandals that journals decide um, that they need to do more. And of course, you know, what is interesting about both those cases is that they're not within the UK, they're not practicing in a UK environment. 
the people who are responsible for doing the ethical review are in Germany and Japan. And it really does show up this, this issue that continues today, which is how do you actually make sure that ethical approval has been received? How do you actually make sure that, you know, the, the reporting that uh, is being done when you people are submitting journal articles actually bears up to the reality of the situation? And we've yeah. seen that with COVID, you know, it's been a huge challenge for journals to um, not just within anesthesia, but, you know, across the board to try and both fulfill their um, their perceived requirements of getting information out there, you know, providing people with the absolute up to the minute um, understanding of treatments and, you know, approaches, whilst also fulfilling those obligations. It remains a huge and considerable challenge. Yes, and, for of course, and of course, it's not just that, is it? Because nowadays, if, you, if you've got a university, or the, the tenure of your post, a lot of it is dependent upon regular publication in high peer-reviewed journals, high-quality peer-reviewed journals. And that likely to drive keen researchers, but also those who will fraudulently manufacture some, I mean, the worst case is complete manufacture of data, like, like food and bold. And it's it's always it's kind of embarrassing that it's always our specialty, anesthesia, that tops the list when you look at, at fraudulent practice and i'm sure and i'm uh, I, I will argue to my dying day this is because we're better at spotting it i mean fuji famously uh that this all occurred in the early i think early part of the 20th the 21st century 2010s primarily before that actually uh, and he published in many journals many 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 papers and as i understand it questions were raised about the validity of his data after a while before i took over certainly a journal that i ran and my predecessor got together with several several other journal chiefs. And essentially, apparently, as I understand it, they decided amongst themselves over a pint or something equivalent that they just wouldn't publish any more papers by Fuji. And that's, that was really, that was the almost like the first reaction of journal editors, tremendously informal way of dealing with what was perceived to be a problem. But then the Committee on Publication Fix was formed. I don't know when, you may well know that. And they started producing guidelines how to deal with um, ethical issues and issues of fraud as well. And it all became, as it should have done much earlier, much more formalised. And that's what led to the unmasking of Bolt and many others as well. Talking fraud, we should probably mention John Carlyle, an anaesthetist, a consultant anaesthetist in Torbay, who first came up with a process for detecting fraudulent uh, data by looking at the background data of papers that had been submitted. Um, uh, and it's a, a complex statistical tool, which I don't pretend to even fully understand, but it has proved to be very, very effective indeed. It's been uh, adopted by the New England Journal of Medicine as well. Uh, and John has been an absolute star, not many, even within the academic community, let alone outside it, know of John's name. And he deserves to be mentioned here because it was a really quite phenomenal achievement. A consultant anaesthetist from a small district general hospital to have done this phenomenal work. And the more you apply his process uh, and the techniques that have come from it, which are now available on uh, as software and on AI as well, uh, the more fraud you start to discover, rather horrifyingly. The only other thing that I think might be worth adding is, you know, we, we've been talking um, about this system of, of trying to identify fraudulent data. And that really, you know, became necessary because of this shift towards big data. You know, we have 
through computer processing, their ability to use ever larger, ever more significant data sets. But if you follow that back, um, you know, this really fits into when we were talking about the, the changes that have happened in science. The idea both for the BJA and anesthesia of what it is that they should be publishing did undergo this radical shift. And, you know, you can really pinpoint it to the emergence of the randomised control trial. Randomised control trials, as my supervisor, Carson Timmerman, has written about, really came out of um, biometric research at their Medical Research Council. Um, and actually, there was a, a really fascinating special issue of the BJA in 1967, where they kind of introduced the idea of clinical trials to their audience. So it really makes for fantastic reading, you know, how they kind of justify why this is a better methodology, you know, why anyone would want to do it. Um, and this really is very much the start. You know, they talk about this thalidomide scandal in the editorial and really trying to have increased rigor and increased rigor in the methodology. And you can definitely kind of trace this uh, idea of really well controlled research trials all the way through to the kind of huge data sets that we're dealing with now. And of course, evidence based medicine. As a, as a sort of defined concept and a defined idea. And so what's really fantastic is then we have this set of ways that anaesthetists have responded to the challenges of, you know, changing methodologies, the need for uh, understanding data and being able to work with it and crucially identify fraud in it. Uh, so I do think there's much more work to be done. The way that anaesthesia has responded to this increasing focus on data, this increasing focus on methodology is really fascinating. Um, and I do think that, you know, the various figures who have helped the community as a whole to respond to, you know, how do we look at a report of a randomized control trial and understand what's going on? How do we look at the data and say, this data is way too perfect. There's no way it's not fraudulent. You know, those people actually have played a phenomenal role in equipping the specialism. And so many of them have strong connections to the journals for obvious reasons. So yeah, I do think they all deserve more attention and more, more focus on them. And of course, the randomized control trial is now under pressure again. I'm going to attending a conference <laughs> uh, later today online, which is an international conference of uh, people who do work on um, intuitive interspecies communication. A lot of these things that we're discussing, so, you know, in terms of peer review, in terms of ethics, it really can all be tied into the kind of professionalization of academic publishing. So there is a real shift and it's not, you know, it's not a line in the sand. But if we think of the sort of uh, up until the early 70s as a kind of cottage industry, you then have this shift where certain uh, publishers realize that academic publishing can be a cash cow and you do see this switch over and, and it, in, it really does impact so many different parts of the sort of journal universe so in uh, the early 1970s the BJA was 
finally wrenched themselves away from their original publisher. And it really came to a head because... Who, the who was? Who, uh, it, who was um, it was a small local Manchester firm who were not what we would consider a scientific publisher. Their real only product was the BGA. You know, they'd really put all their eggs into one basket. And unfortunately, they'd stopped fulfilling some of the basic requirements of their contract, like publishing the journal on time, like sending copies of the journal to the US. And so, you know, the decision was made eventually after much wrangling to go to Macmillan's. Um, who offered for the first time the opportunity to make a profit for the journal. And I was looking at the history of anesthesia as well. And what's really interesting to me is that they too, in 1972, they made the move to Blackwell Scientific yeah. Publishing. Um, and so obviously their financial model is very different. Um, you know, it does seem that many years they made a loss, which was plugged by the association. Um, I didn't realise that. That's, that's yeah, news so to me. It says... That in 1965 was one of the only years in the 1960s that they managed to make any kind of profit at all. They made a grand total of £1,018 profit, <laughs> which clearly was a real high point for them. But, you know, yeah. their financial model and reason for existing is different because they're a part of the association and part of, you know, their services to members. Whereas yeah, the and, BJ, they, and, and for, many, for, of course, for many decades now, Anacida has provided substantial income to the, to the association, which is a very different picture to the BJA and the college, who have a very different relation. Absolutely. Not the, not, not the format to go into that right now. Um, so what's interesting is, you know, in the 60s, they are essentially a loss maker. And then they decide in 1972 to move to a specific scientific publishers. And that is, I'm sure, the start of when they start to make a real, you know, concerted profit that is of benefit to the association. Um, and the story at the BJ is not dissimilar. They move to Macmillan's, they start making a profit for the first time to the extent that they decide to register as a charity. And that's when they start start to have all of these charitable activities you know they put on various workshops they start to fund fellowships it really is a radical shift in what they see their purpose as how they operate you know how they yeah, justify so the, their existence in the world so because the bja is, is not finished up as one of the major funders of of research you know, that substantial amounts of money are now put by the bja towards research and that's uh, i mean and there are other journals that do that as well i think but i, I just wonder if the bja was out there in front of that yeah, and it all it all really comes from this need to justify themselves as a charity. Um, but you know, I do think there were very genuine, there was a genuine feeling in the journal that they were now in a position to support the future of academic of anesthesia research and wanted to do that. You know, that was always a high priority for them. Um, but they would not have been in a position to do that had there been this radical shift, which really comes down to one man realising that money could be made in academic publishing. Um, and so that shift, I mean, I would call it neoliberalisation, right? It's, it's turning something into a product that can be sold. And it really does map what's happened in, um, in uh, academia. So you do start to get what we see now, which is this kind of churning over of you have to publish or perish, you have to publish or perish. Um, and so, you know, as we've already discussed, there does suddenly become this requirement 
to churn out huge numbers of papers and publications. And so you have these two processes kind of going in parallel. You have changes in academia, which change the nature of research. You know, it becomes very much on a funding cycle. It becomes very much about really trading in your citation index for your job. That's what happens. But it is matched by this radical shift in academic publishing where there's this sudden and huge emphasis on profit. And, and it is a radical shift. And I see that happening, you know, at the start of the 70s. And, and, you, and you mentioned the citation index. When did that become a big thing? Well, again, it's a slow process, right? And also the degree to which, I'm sure we spoke about this previously, but the the degree to which um, journals take it seriously really does shift over time, you know, like <laughs> for, for some journals now it seems to be, you know, uh, certainly at first glance, this kind of all important measurement uh, journals are and have been for the past, you know, however many years locked in this eternal <laughs> battle <laughs> to get to the top. Um, but there is also now, I would say, an increasing understanding that the way that it's calculated is not necessarily the most obvious or useful uh, metric. And also it doesn't necessarily, you know, if you think about huge journals that have a real history, I'm thinking of nature, I'm thinking of the Lancet, you know, do they have the same concerns about their yearly citation index as a smaller and more specialist journal maybe they yeah, do. So that's maybe a really good don't. question and I think it was it was the battle between the two British journals that brought that made citation index, index important in my mind and certainly in the in the mind of the editors of the BJA as well and certainly if I was ever at a conference and Jenny Hunter was there and Anesthesia was briefly in the lead of the BJA on citation index she would she would hunt me out and berate me uh for all sorts of iffy practices and and i would do the same with her and of course that you all you always made a lot of your citation index when it was the highest of the two higher of the two and you always said oh what it's, it's not important it's not important to the quality of the journal when it was the lower of the two so uh, uh citation index i mean it's a fascinating topic in itself we used to hover both terms around the what one to two sort of mark sometimes sitting at the magic figure of three that's another word now of course so um the journal that i used to edit is now the number one anesthesiology journal in the world out of 35 with a citation index over 12 and that's probably largely down to its use of social media from a fairly early point in the history of social media they were they were on board with it and it seems to have made a very big difference and i don't know is, is citation index i guess it probably is still a very important issue as to where, as an author, you send your, you send your paper? I, I think that there's an inherent problem at the heart of all of this, which is what I mentioned earlier, which is like the neoliberalisation of academia and of journals. Is, is any of this actually helping the practice of anaesthesia? You know, I think when you go back to the roots of the BJA and when you go back to the roots of anaesthesia, it's very clear that for both journals in slightly different ways, but both journals genuinely have a commitment to help the practice of anaesthesia, to help anaesthetists to practice in the best way possible. Now, they've gone about it in different ways, but it's very clear, it's there in the archives that that's the purpose. And I think, you know, there are starting to be a much 
wider conversation about things like epistemic injustice. So for example, if you think about where the leading journals in the world, who do they publish? They publish, you know, Western countries with a bit of India and a bit of China, you know. Where does that knowledge sit? Who is it helpful to? Where does knowledge that doesn't fit into that very prescribed, very fixed box of what scientific knowledge should look like? And I do think we are beginning to have conversations about, yes, you might be at the top of the citation index, whoever that is on the day. Yes, you might, you know, be making X, Y, Z amount of profit. Yes, you know, you might be getting the most hits on social media. But I do think there's a genuine question to be asked, which is, who is this helping? Yeah, not even that it needs to help anaesthetists. It needs to help patients. That's the bottom line. And not just patients, as you rightly say, uh, in the West, in India, in China, but the vast majority of patients who are not anaesthetized in those situations. Uh, and that's a very difficult topic and a very difficult area for that that journals have to uh, have to deal with and the concept of a journal is it's quite a western idea in itself isn't it i guess yeah i mean it was you know pushed around the world as part of the british empire like we have to be realistic the reason why the bja did have this global circulation was because it came to fruition during the point at which the, the the uk had a huge empire and they don't necessarily talk about it very clearly, but when Cohen, who's the first editor of the BJA, calls initially in his in the f- very first issue of the BJA for an association, he says that it should be an association of Britain and its empire. You know, it really genuinely was taken for granted that the UK was at the centre of a huge empire and that it would use that empire. It would spread its knowledge from the metropolis because, of course, that's how they thought it worked. You know, we, the Brits, produce the knowledge and then we send it out to the rest of the empire. You know, that was the reality until the 1960s. And, you know, we can talk a lot about post-colonial change, but the reality is that, you know, the ways that knowledge functions still are still along those lines. Like we still think that the knowledge should be produced in the US and in the UK and a handful of other countries and then should be dispersed as if the people who are practicing practicing anesthesia in other countries have nothing to contribute, you know, to those wider discussions and it does follow those those same routes and so we are beginning to see particularly for historians who work on a much more global vision of the history of medicine but also in people talking about you know knowledge production we are beginning to have those questions and those conversations and those conferences but as ever within academia has that has that filtered through at all (laughs) to the actual practice of how journals are run and I think you know we've just seen a lot of um, writers and editors at Elsevier have just walked out they've gone on strike this happened in the past few days because they've said that Elsevier has got too greedy And that they don't want to be associated with that model anymore. So the, the profits, I mean, I mean the, the, the profits of Elsevier being quoted are astonishing, absolutely astonishing, billions of dollars. I mean, it's a, a, a massive, massive organisation. You think of academic publishers as being, you know, a small bloke with glasses sitting <laughs> sitting in an office, uh, you know, sending out sending out copy everywhere. It's phenomenal, but Elsevier do seem to be the largest beasts in the business. They are by far. 
Um, but I think what is truly fascinating to me is that this is people who work for Elsevier. This is not critique from the outside. This is people who work for Elsevier saying this model is, you know, absolutely unhinged. And well, we one can... of the, I mean, one of the, yeah, one of the journals I, I had, had the honour of being, being chair of the editorial board on had to tear itself away from Elsevier during my, during my time. I, I argued very strongly in favour of, of moving elsewhere, but it was extraordinarily difficult to tear the journal away from its roots. Well, we didn't own the journal. Right, exactly. And I think, you know, that we can think about COVID as well. COVID was a phenomenal challenge to almost all medical journals that had anything, you know, anything to say really about the practice of medicine. COVID was a phenomenal challenge, both in very practical ways, you know, printing and uh, distribution and editorial meetings, all of those practical challenges. And I think that we are seeing a kind of really rapid move to entirely online publishing. I do think that COVID rapidly accelerated that process just because, you know, what what use is a paper copy when everybody wants to look at preprints and you know isn't going to be reading it? Yeah, and the, and the scientific picture was changing from day to day during right. COVID in a hugely important way. So turn around, yeah, from doing the research, getting the findings, submitting them to a journal, and then getting them out there became extraordinarily important. Turnaround times shrunk through the floor, but uh, very effectively in the case of some journals. I mean, um, the, the journal that I edited, we had a, a slightly odd peer review process. Uh, during, during my time and indeed uh, before and after it where most of the 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 peer review was done by a very small group who returned stuff very quickly so we had very rapid turnaround time but even they would not have been of much use thing involving a printed journal in fact wouldn't have been of much use when we had such a, a rapidly changing situation as we had with COVID and we needed other ways of getting the information out there so it's been I think it's been a very big driver of online pre uh, and and as you rightly said pre pre-printing pre, pre-publication previews and so on. And that's made a big difference. I mean, science has always moved fairly quickly, but during that time, it moved astonishingly quickly. And importantly, this was life-saving stuff. Absolutely. And I think, you know, that huge pressure also did show that things can be done differently. I think it's opened up really fascinating conversations about open access, which obviously has been a huge issue for so many years and continues to be um but so what the bja did was that anything that was related it was part of their special covid series was made immediately available online open access no there was no payment it wasn't gold open access it wasn't paid for by institutions it was just made available online um and that really was perceived by the editorial board as a as a necessary service um but it does open up a whole host of questions then as to okay so if covid meets that criteria that where we should just be making everything available immediately online for free to anyone what else meets that criteria and how do we move forwards now that we know that this is a possibility when we still have this uh, sort of mode of profit making that comes from the publishers not necessarily the journals themselves but it's being pushed by the publishers yeah no, absolutely and this this question of, of who can access journal uh, has been very 
hot topic long before COVID came in and, and continues to be now. Uh, and it's a really important question. You know, where is the financial value in scientific research and who does it reside with? And publishers historically have taken excessive amounts of that financial value to themselves. And, and of course, now we have the phenomenon of vampire publishers out there who go out actively try to reproduce papers in their own journals and have really muddied the waters. The question becomes even more important, doesn't it? And do you see any any end to this process? What's what's going to be the, as it were, the the uh, the solution to the open access question? I mean, it depends on your sort of fundamental slant on the humanity, doesn't it? Which I have to confess, my being a historian of the 20th century is not known for its optimism. <laughs> you know, I wish I I wish I thought that. Uh, everyone was going to rise up and turn over the current model and start afresh. But we're talking about hugely powerful institutions. That is the thing. When you have a model that has been so incredibly financially rewarding for publishers, why would they then acknowledge the, you know, the very clear reality that knowledge does not reside under their legal trademarks and should be made as far as possible available to all? They're not going to acknowledge that because they can't make as much money. I, I was not expecting to get into this field. I spent quite a lot of my time when I've, I've been editor-in-chief of things or, or chaired a board of trying to balance out the finances. But, but that's always been between the publisher and the parent organisation, uh, which is a, a worthwhile task in itself when you belong to that parent organisation and you're trying to establish that it's the members of that organisation that have generated the value. But it doesn't really help on the open access side of things and, and, and you know, who can see paper. And if they can see papers, how does anybody make a profit out of it? And should indeed anybody make a profit out of it anyway? And why can't patients have open access? I mean, the basic question, if a patient participates in a research project, why can't they see the results? It seems to me to be ridiculous. Absolutely. And, you know, I'm currently doing an ethics application for another project. And one of the things that you have to very clearly state in our, you know, University of Manchester ethics procedure is how the people from whom you are extracting this data will be able to access the findings. You know, we know that it's important. It's important enough to be included in ethics requirements. And yet we have no <laughs> realistic system uh, on a wider scale for, for how that's supposed to take place. And I do think, you know, how much do you see, you were editor during the 90s, right? Um, uh, yeah, I was, uh, yes, yes, yeah. Um, <laughs> I was a boss later on, but I was an editor <laughs> during the 90s, you're right. Yeah. And I was just wondering how much, a lot of the things that we're talking about at the moment have been very much facilitated by the internet. You know, the, the BJA is interesting because they did band together with some other uh, anesthesia journals and produce a CD-ROM of, you know, five years worth of right. issues, which was viewed as, you know, a real step forward. And I know that in 2000, Jenny was sort of instrumental in introducing um, a kind of online system for submissions, which obviously has rapidly developed to the point we're at now. And I don't think it was anywhere near as efficient at that point. I think there was still somebody 
uh, secretary or somebody typing things in individually <laughs> to get the process started. But I was just wondering, you know, how much you see the the pace of change as being much more rapid now. Do you think that things were changing as quickly in the 2000s? Did it feel like things were changing so quickly in the 2000s? No, uh, the, really the big questions are print versus online, particularly. And in line with that, who, who has access to papers become really, really important questions. And they are absolutely fundamental. In my day, it was, it was, it was sort of tinkering around, around things a bit. They made big difference. I mean, when I started as an editor, so back in 95, uh, 94, so I used to get a pile of papers to review each week. And they would arrive in a brown paper envelope, which I would generally take down to Trent Bridge uh, during the summer or to a football match during the winter. I'd sit there with my pile of papers, go through them while watching, keeping my arms sport as well, particularly particularly good for a long long day of cricket. Uh, and you you go through them with a pencil and cross things out and write down opinions and so on. And then you would email the editor back with your opinion. So this was at least something. But then when I took over as chief in 2003, we were approached by our then publishers, Blackwell, as to whether we wanted to participate in an online review process they just set up. But it looked very complicated and clunky, and it still does in state actually. Uh, and so we, we developed our own system, which was called Paper Chase. And essentially, it was a, it was a Word document that followed a paper round by email with pull-down boxes uh, into which you could, could enter your views and, and your verdicts and so on. And that would then follow on to the next one. And it worked, aston- a Paper Chase worked astonishingly well. Uh, it worked all through my time and most of Steve's time as well. It was a very effective and simple way of doing it. But t- suddenly by the time I ended, we were a paperless office, but we were doing the proofs online as well, which we hadn't done when I started. So that there was a big change because when Mike Harmer took over uh, from Mal Morg as editor-in-chief of Anesthesia, apparently a van had to deliver filing cabinets full of papers from the Hammersmith to the University Hospital of Wales. Uh, and there was no, I think there was like a small box of papers arrived when I took over. And then when I handed over, there were no papers at all. The question is, uh, has arisen in the past as to whether the UK, or indeed the world, needs more than one anaesthetic journal, uh, but the UK in particular, and obviously we have two, which vie with each other for the top spot with regard to citation index, as you may have heard earlier in this podcast. But to my mind, at least, it instills a healthy level of competition. And you'll often see the, the current chiefs of the two journals in debate, talking to each other at conferences about this, this very thing. And I'm sure it does drive quality. And it also, from the point of view of the author, at least gives you a choice of where to submit to as well and that can be important in its own right Uh, if you've got a a bad history with one of the journals or you don't feel they're looking at your manuscript in a in an acceptable manner you've got somewhere else to go but they do tend as i've said earlier to focus on different aspects of the specialty anyway the british journal of anesthesia has tended to publish more basic science and uh, anesthesia has focused sometimes specifically so on clinical anesthesia of interest to the the practicing anesthetist on the ground and they complement each other extraordinarily well as referenced by their hugely high citation indexes indices at the moment uh, and i think it'll be a terrible shame to see one of them in fact they couldn't now merge or one of them drop out because they're only accepting a very small proportion of papers that are submitted to them in the first place so you actually need the output for research to be disseminated to the scientific community, the clinical community, and to the patient community as a whole. Because otherwise, you're doing research, you're sometimes randomizing patients, you're harming individuals potentially, certainly putting them at stress by randomizing them. Uh, And if you don't get any good to come out of that, then that's not an ethical way to perform. 
So when you conduct a research project, you must be dedicated to publishing it somewhere. And so you must have the output for that publication. The history of these journals is not short of controversy. You've covered some of it. And it also contains many, many issues which are live today and the discussions will continue. So thank you very, very much indeed. It's been fascinating. Dr. David Bogod, Eleanor Shaw, thank you. Thank you thank so you much for having me. The Royal College of Anaesthetists warmly welcomes members from across the globe. So if you're based outside of the UK, we invite you to discover the array of benefits available to you as an RCOA international affiliate. To learn more about joining today and to explore the benefits of membership, simply enter RCOA international affiliate into your preferred search engine or click the link in our show notes. Music